Take your Bible, if you would, Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to continue this morning on the series, our Christmas series of the coming king, Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, as we look at this picture of these titles that were given to the Messiah, the one that would come, the one that would rule, recognizing that there was something uh, special about this one that they were to look forward to, not lose hope in the fact that he would come. Let's refresh our memory as we walk into Isaiah 9. I want to read verses 1 through 7 this morning because uh, I just think it helps to continually set the context of the titles from which these uh, arise out of. So Isaiah chapter 9, follow along with me if you would. He says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the, of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nations, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior and, and in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born, and to us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And then of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's bow in prayer together as we look into this text that God would continue to help us apply this and understand it in our own lives. Father, we, we are delighted to, to be able to have this time, this focused effort that we can look into Isaiah's titles and the, and the prophecy of the one that would come as a ruling king. Lord, we know who this person is. It's not one that we have, we, it is one we still wait for in his second coming, but it is the one who came and he conquered sin and death. Lord, I pray that as we look at these, at the title of Mighty God this morning, that we would just continue to help in our own lives reflect on the majestic, mighty nature of the, of the triune God. Lord, that in all of his wisdom and all of his might, he will never not fulfill his promise that he, 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 he promised to his people and to us. Father, be with us this morning as we study this text together. In your name we pray, amen. Now when you study the book of Isaiah, I think one of the things that we've continued to reiterate, and I would, I, I would like to reiterate it this morning as well, is just the reality that when you come to a section of scripture of these prophetic natures of Isaiah, and he begins to talk to us about a child that would be born, a son that would be given, and a government that would be ruled. 
you cannot help or you should not move too quickly to misunderstand uh, or, or, or lack to understand the context from which this book uh, is found. A time of great religious decline. A time period where people were not doing the things that God would desire them to do. In fact, the reality is all the coming oppression that Isaiah talks about in, in Isaiah 1 through 7 and all the way through verse 8 until he gets to here. He's talking about the decline and divide of the kingdom. He's talking about brothers and sisters coming against each other. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom now at odds. Other empires now vying for power. Because when you get to Isaiah 9, it's supposed to help you understand the dire need of the people. It's supposed to help elevate you to a point by the time that Isaiah says, by the death of you, time of Uzziah, when he began to prophesy, there was something that needed to be said because the people were in religious decline and were misappropriating issues of worship and all kinds of components of, of the law that God had set for them on Mount Sinai. Ever since the time of the conquest, when, when Joshua divided up the land, the Israelites faced an incredible challenge to, to push out the people of the land so that their worship would not be hindered. A good majority of the rest of, of the time period after the conquest is this religious story of the life of Israel, this up and down components in, in, the, in the kingdom where people would follow God and then they would decline and not follow God. And then there would be a king and they would follow God. In the northern kingdom of Israel, there was not much following God. In the southern kingdom of Judah, there was some following God and then decline of, of following God. But is the story and the litany in history of Israel's history that by the time Isaiah comes to prophesy, the people should have already understood why they should have been asking this question because God was allowing these circumstances to be orchestrated. That's the way I think it's helpful for us to think. God was creating a situation for his people so that they were supposed to look up to him and say, we need you. We need you. You could remember, perhaps, even they, they would remember the time period when the group was on Mount uh, Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and they were rehearsing the blessings and the cursings. And guess what they were experiencing? When you don't follow God, there are cursings that accompany that consequence of not choosing to follow God. And they should have been called and reminded in their own mind, why is this happening to us? Why, why are we in decline? Why are our kingdoms separated? Why is Syria joining with Israel? Why is Assyria now wanting to conquer all of us and come and ruin the land that God has given to us uh, as his people? And Isaiah's answer was, it won't be this way forever. And that's where he lifts us up and he lifts up the people's gaze to remind them of a time in the future that, that, that nothing of what they've experienced would happen, something far different. And now when he comes to this section and we, we talked about this issue of this wonderful God, this wonderful counselor, it, it, should, it, it should supposed to cause their mind to say, who could be so wise to orchestrate a different set of circumstances, a different set of events? Oh, it's this wonderful counselor, 
the one who could, who could go before us and think ahead of us for us because we are not thinking in right ways. But yet there was one who would come and who would be thinking according to God's standards. It was this mindset that the, that the nation of Israel should have asked themselves, why are we going through this? And by the time we get to Isaiah 9, when he comes, their hearts were supposed to be lifted to say, we can't wait for this one, this wonderful counselor. And today, as we talk about this second title, the mighty God. Well, what does it mean to be mighty? You think about the titles that are often given in the Bible, and in this particular section, you have this title, the God, God Almighty, or the Mighty God, as it is translated. You think about the different ways in which people in the Israelite history would understand the idea of what it meant to be a mighty person. For example, think about the first person who was labeled mighty on earth after the flood. You're racking your mind right now to think, who is that? Here you have the man who is named Nimrod, who was said who was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And I know we just got done with hunting season, and some of you are still in it. And you, you've seen those pictures, right, after someone shoots a, a really big buck, and they're like, oh, let, let me show you this. And they're holding the rack, and they get a big smile on their face. And people would think, oh, man, now, you want to talk about manly and mighty. That's the guy. Holding the head. Well, guess what? Nimrod was that kind of guy. And yet, the reality is, is what was Nimrod king over as a mighty hunter? All of a sudden, you see the kingdom of Babel appear. Nimrod being in the line of the son of Ham, of, of one of Noah's sons. And all of a sudden, you see the kingdom of Babel and the destruction of a mighty man who got caught up with being mighty. Perhaps the children of Israel would think about another mighty man in their history by the, uh, by the name of Saul. Of all the people that they would want to rule over them when they asked for a king, here comes this man, this Saul, who stood head and shoulders above everyone else, who was a man who was handsome and strong, and he looked like a warrior. And yet we're presented to him, and he's losing the donkeys. We have a mighty man in battle who can't keep his, his, his livestock in check. Here yet they would say, he was mighty, he was a mighty king. And then their mind might have reflected even later that because they knew what happened to Saul. Well, we thought he was mighty and, and yet he didn't end up being so mighty and he got replaced. But then there was this one who, whose name was David, this little shepherd boy who was promised in 2 Samuel, that God would give him a covenant of, and of his kingdom and of his dynasty, there would be no end to, to his rule and to his reign of his family line. They would look at the, the, the military components of David's life and they would think, who mightier could there be than a man who could slay a giant? Except for David, it was a little different than Nimrod. He wasn't holding the head of some animal. He was holding the head of Goliath. I don't know if they had pictures. They probably didn't. Uh, but that wasn't above the mantle. But he was considered a mighty man. And all of a sudden, this reality for them was of these mighty men of stature. And you look in David's kingdom, and you see in First Chronicles 11, this list of what they called mighty men of valor. 
Oh, it's worth your time to go in First Chronicles 11 and, and look at the, the commitment of the mighty men to King David when all he wanted was a drink from the spring. And these mighty men said, I don't care if I have to make my way through the enemy. I don't care what I have to make it through. I will get my king some water from the well in which he desires. And these mighty men go and they retrieve this water from the well and they bring it to their mighty king David. And he was so filled in his heart with, with, uh, with amazement that they would sacrifice and be willing to do that, that he pours it out as a drink offering before them and was even unwilling to even drink the water that he had longed for. And when people looked in Israel's history, they would view these men of old, these men of renown, mighty men. Well, guess what? He comes and Isaiah talks about another mighty man, another mighty one who would come. And this morning, it's really our duty according to what Isaiah is really calling us to, to rejoice because the Messiah's rule will be characterized by, by power and authority like there has been none before him. Which means we're forced to begin to get a picture of the reality of power according to what Isaiah is dealing with. The word as many times has happened in this particular title is the word that is connected in this, uh, in this statement, the word mighty with the word, the shortened version of the, of the name for God of Elohim, in many occasions which, which was often done to describe various names of God, such as when in Genesis 17, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he says, I am the God, I am El Shaddai, I am God the Mighty One. And he does this. We sing about it. You, you saw it on the screen this morning. Emmanuel, the shortened name of the word or the verse of, of, the, of the, the title of Elohim, the God who creates all things. This God is mighty. This God is, is the one who will come that we can rejoice. And, and, and Isaiah is saying, Here, you have to have a picture of power. But what, what kind of picture of power, when you think of a mighty man, what, what picture comes to your own mind for a moment? Let me just think for a moment. Who would you classify as mighty? Don't look at your neighbor. You're thinking, okay. You know, maybe your mind goes... Have you ever seen on TV the strongest man competition? They're pulling trucks, semi-trucks. They're pulling airplanes at times down a runway. They're lifting incredible feet. You're thinking, now, when, I, when you watch that, you're thinking, now, that's a mighty man. But what, what is that? Is might just some physical exertion of strength where, where men go to the workout room and of course they've got all the mirrors and they're looking at their neighbor thinking, I am bigger than you. I am mighty, you are weak. I hate working out next to those guys. But the reality is, is what is the mighty that he is talking about? What is the mighty work that this God, this Messiah would do? Well, I think we have to understand the picture of power in light of what peop the people of Israel experience. Not only just the people of renown, not just the mighty men, but their own kings. 
I mean, think about the, the life and story of, of, of the prophet Isaiah for a moment. The span of which covers four different kings of Judah. Now think about the, the, the picture of power that Uzziah would give in 2 Kings chapter 15. Now Isaiah ascends to this prophetic ministry at the death of Uzziah, but he was, the, he was around to experience all of the growth that occurred through the kingdom of Uzziah. It is said of Uzziah that he was a man who followed what God told him to do, but he didn't do something. He didn't tear down the high place. And yet he did many other things to honor the Lord. He was economically strong. You go through the, the, the litany of this in 2 Chronicles 26, and what you realize is he had so much economic increase. He had cattle aplenty. He had money. People were paying tribute to him. His military might was, was, was so uh, incredible. It's recorded in 2 Chronicles 26, where 306,000 some military and mighty men who would secure the kingdom. It's interesting that all of a sudden this phraseology of Uzziah, the people could look back at, at the kingdom of Uzziah and say, Man, I remember when our kingdom of Judah, even though we're separated, I remember when King Uzziah reigned, how good it was. And we do that same thing, don't we? When various people come to power and we think, oh, it was good under this one and not under this one. The people of Israel would equate this. Isaiah would understand they were, they were making comparisons to the kinds of kings that they experienced before. And yet it makes this phrase about Uzziah. He was strong. He was doing this. He was economically strong. He was militarily strong until he became strong in his own eyes. And Uzziah one day decided that all, and of all of his military might and all of the things that he had appeared to be, he had now become puffed up. And he decided one day to head into the, to the temple to offer incense, which, which was something that only the priests could do. And Uzziah comes rushing in, and the priests know what he's doing, and they all flood the temple and say, King, what are you doing? And, Isaiah, and Uzziah is incredibly angry because they won't let him do whatever he wants to do. He's king. Why are you stopping me? You, you, I have to do whatever I want to do. And the priests, and the priests see all of a sudden, at that moment on his forehead, God strikes him with leprosy. The priests grab him, rush him out of the temple, who ascends to his throne, but his son, his son Jotham. Do you imagine this is not the way you're, you'd like your ascension to happen? Your dad's still living outside the kingdom in a separate location, isolated from everybody in a, in a commune of lepers till the end of his days, knowing that now your son is ruling in your stead because you would not obey the Lord. Here's something that ought to stick with you. It stuck with me. One, one decision, all of a sudden, he decided to get puffed up with pride, and he walks in, having done many good things for the kingdom of Israel, and in one moment of his own pride surfacing and manifesting, he begins to tell himself, I'm going to go do this even though I'm not allowed. Who's going to stop me? I'm king. And all of a sudden, he's struck with the consequences that would extend the rest of his life. 
Jotham comes to the throne. It's interesting that his son reigns and he does some of the things that are right, but he doesn't tear down the high places. He doesn't tear down the idolatry and the worship. He reigns for, he reigns for another uh, number of years under the authority of his father. It says in 2 Kings 15, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. And then you get to 2 Chronicles, and he says this. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all his father Uzziah had done. And the chronicler says this, and adds this addition. Except he did not enter the temple of the Lord, but the people still followed corrupt practices. Now think about Jotham's experience with what happened with his father. God, you're going to do that to my dad? He's going to come in here and you won't even accept his, his burning of incense? I'm not going into the house of the Lord anymore, and yet I'm going to try to do what God wants me to do, but I'm going to do it in the way that I choose. This one little component that, that the book of Chronicles adds, I think, is an understanding for us to realize that there was a various level of frustration and anger that this would have happened, that he doesn't even enter, enter the temple after this, and people continued to fall, follow corrupt practices. Are you noticing a theme at this point? Uzziah had done many great things and was a much more spiritual leader and much more spiritual king than, his, than, than those who were often before him. And then his son comes, and there's a decline. And now Jotham reigns, and now there's another one, the son of Jotham, who is Ahaz. Now think about this. In 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28, you can go back there, but let me just give you the, the highlights of, 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 this, of this king's reign. He did not care about what was right in God's eyes in verse number two of 2 Kings. He walked in the ways, it's described as in the ways of the kings of Israel. He sacrificed multiple sons to false idolatry, and this is interesting, in the Valley of Hinnom. If you know anything about the New Testament Valley of Hinnom, which was the garbage dump, what you recognize is the reality that all of this idolatry in past Israelite history percolates at a level where we see it in pictures. He sacrifices his sons. He sacrificed and worshiped idolatry on the high places. And in fact, 2 Chronicles adds this addition. He says he doesn't just worship other idols. He puts them everywhere and anywhere. And he says every, ev under every green tree, you could see an idolatrous statue under the southern kingdom, Judah's reign of Ahaz totally corrupted by pagan kings. And instead, unlike his, his grandfather Uzziah, when he, rushed into the, when he went into the temple, the priest tried to stop him. And in Ahaz's reign, he asked the priest to create an idolatrous temple and bring it to Jerusalem. And the priest at the time acquiesce to his command and say, we'll do it. What does that tell you of the king's line? What does it tell you of the priestly line? Decline, 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 decline. Only to get a glimpse after Jotham when Hezekiah comes to reign as kings and he has all of these religious reforms and binds himself to the word of God once again. 
and begins to bring the people back to worshiping God. And Hezekiah does something that neither his father, his grandfather, or his great-grandfather would have done. And he tears down the high places as a symbol of his solidarity to the king of heaven. It is these people that are the backdrop that all of a sudden created a circumstance when the people wouldn't obey and the kings would no longer listen and the nation was in decline. It is this context from which Isaiah says, but there is one coming who is a mighty God. He is nothing like Uzziah. He is nothing like Jotham. He is nothing like Ahaz. And, and, and he'll even be far above what you even experienced in religious reform under Hezekiah's reign. He will be greater than all of them. Now, it begs the question, I think, that we have to understand why when we come to this particular book that we would understand the, the purpose of power. I mean, here you have a picture of what earthly power and authority looks like, and it's often used in despicable, evil ways. And yet the power of this Messiah and the title given to him was one to elevate us to say, this is going to be different. And the purpose of his power, this El Gibor, this idea of God the mighty, he is so different than the mighty men. He's different than the mighty kings of old. He will draw our attention in such a way. He will be the El Shaddai of Genesis 17. The God Almighty who brings covenant, who promises from Abraham's seed that they will always be there. They will be of the sands of the sea and the stars of the heaven. Well, guess what? This name, Elohim, that he uses is the Old Testament name that was often given to God to help express this reality of what it means to be this mighty individual. Well, one thing for sure is that Elohim expressed this reality. This God was supernatural. This God was not like all the other pagan gods of the nations. All the other pagan gods of the nation were just men blown big. Men doing what men do and women doing what women do, filled with all kinds of despicable acts and, and despicable worship. And yet this God who would come would be a God who is going to do things of the supernatural. And Isaiah says, even his arrival on the scene is going to be miraculous. He is the Emmanuel, the one who comes from on high and broke through and becomes God with us. That cannot happen without a supernatural element that this king would come of a line and from a place of eternal existence. The same idea is expressed in Psalm chapter 24, verse 8, when this is stated by the psalmist, who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. These titles, this idea of Elohim, the God who originates and creates all things that you and I could ever see and understand. He's the God above all gods that Old Testament describes him as. There is none other God like you. It's the God that's the incomprehensible God, which is why these titles, when you begin to stack them on top of each other, it's not just a God of might, but it is a God of wisdom who has eternally existed from, from, from eternity past 
in a way that would come and fulfill this prophecy of Isaiah. The title would also distinguish God as the God of heaven who is above all the false gods of the earth. I love what Isaiah says. If you've never read this passage, write it down and read it later in Isaiah chapter 44, all the way from verse, really the whole chapter, but really from verse 6 onward. Let me give you a a flavor of this idea of the true king that Isaiah uh, expresses in Isaiah 44. He says this, Thus says the Lord, the king of Israel and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. This word, this name for God, this supernatural, mighty, eternal individual who is all wise is the God who there is no one like him. Not only is a God of supernatural abilities, the God who could part the Red Seas, the God who could bring them out of Egypt that they celebrated on the Passover. He is the God who could take care of kings and nations and holds them in the palm of his hand and moves them as chess pieces on the board of history and orchestrates only what he wants to happen, when he wants to happen it, to the degree he wants it to happen. There is no God who can do things like this. And Isaiah, in the latter half of Isaiah 44, he almost kind of makes fun of this idea of of false idolatry and he says all kinds of things like this in Isaiah 44, 9. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not, do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may, be, they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? It begs the reality in our own lives for us as believers to live a life of solidarity and commitment and allegiance to this King, Jesus. How dare we become like the people or the nation of Israel of old who followed after idols, who wouldn't tear down the high places? It, does it not beg the question in your own life, what are the idols I serve? What are the things that I bow down to? What high places of things that I put at such an important level that I refuse to take down so that I can worship and put Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords in my life? It cannot be just some superficial presence of profession where you say, I do this. It's not something you can just say. It's something that you bear allegiance to through your entirety of your life. It can't be something you play fast and loose with as the people and the nation of Israel often did. If if God did that to his own elected people, will he not bring consequences to us as well and hold us responsible if we choose to follow in paths of idolatry? Of course he will. Let us never forget that this mighty God is a God of righteousness a God of holiness, a king that comes to rule and reign in righteousness. 
that when we think about even idols that we may worship in our own lives, they look different than the high places of the Old Testament, but they are no less strongholds in our lives. The title reflects this supernatural God. It it reflects this God above all the false gods. It reflects this God who does wonders. Psalm 77, 14 says this, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the people. This is a God who everything that you can see, everything you've ever experienced, created by the words of his mouth. And he called them into existence. When yet there was nothing and the earth was void without anything. And darkness was on the face of the earth and the spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep, Genesis says, and God spoke. And he would say so many things that would create the world into existence. There is no king who would be like this king, filled with might, filled with supernatural authority, filled with a rule and reign that would look nothing like their predecessors. But it also reflects this king's mission. Because often when you think about the king or the God who was mighty, Most of the expressions that are used in the Old Testament language to to reflect this Elohim and the word that is used for mighty in the Hebrew is gibor. Well, what was that? Well, every time you trace that word in connection with God or other even mighty men, it tends to have some level of military exploits. Can you think to yourself for a moment why he would use this title in this context? You have the Assyrian army that's coming. You have the Syrian-Israelite army that's coming. You've got all of these empires around the world. What kind of God do you want? You want a God who is filled with wisdom. Now let me connect the two titles. He is not just a wonderful counselor in the sense that he knows all things and is the God of truth. He is the God who is so mighty that within he is the greatest military strategist of all time that would ever exist so that as as Israel would think about the nations around them and ask themselves the question, who could strategize in a way to bring Israel to the place and keep us where God wants us and where we should be? It is the God Almighty. It is the God who of of heroism, the God who will have such a, a king with such heroic components. Well, what was that? heroism that he talks about, that God is mighty and he will be this mighty king, this child that would come. Well, notice that the title reflects even the reality of redemption, a God who is heroic to save. I mean, Luke chapter two, when the angels come to the shepherds, they say this, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. He's connecting all these messianic titles of the Old Testament. A savior, one who would redeem. They would would need to connect this Isaiah 9, the child that would be born, for unto them a son would be given. Who is this son? A son of the line of David who is a savior who would redeem, who is the Messiah, the Christ from the prophets of the Old Testament, who would be Lord. 
And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now here's the mental conundrum of the incarnation. The mighty, eternal, majestic, all-knowing, heroic, military strategist that would be unlike any other king that they could have ever imagined. They had long awaited for him, and now we expected this king who would come riding on a horse and kicking all the Roman rule out, and he comes wrapped in human flesh from the virgin birth of Mary, and he's lying humble in a manger in a food trough of animals, and he is anything that, that what you would, it was anything but described at that state in, from a, a human standpoint as kingly. And yet this majestic God in his supernatural ability overshadows Mary and brings a supernatural birth of the Christ, the eternal Christ who would come in a manger. Jesus would speak to thousands and crowds later. This title of this mighty God who would come and rule and he would offer himself and he would say things like this to thousands of people as he, as he preached and he taught in the land that was, that was once filled with darkness and would now see a great light. You would hear Jesus say these remarkable words in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Long had they waited for rest from their enemies. Long had they awaited a king who would come, and yet this one who would come and say, come and follow me, and I will give you rest for your soul. Perhaps you're here this morning and there is no rest of your soul. You lie in bed in anguish wondering, what, who is this God? Who is this Christ child that all these Christians celebrate year after year? Who is this person who Isaiah prophesies? He is the Savior. He's come to save you. He's come to save you from the very thing you couldn't save yourself from, which is sin. And if you follow him and you repent of your sin and trust in him and you, and you bear allegiance to this king, you recognize that he is the Lord, the king of heaven, he will save you if you confess your sins to him. And you can find the rest that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 11 for your soul, even in the midst of all kinds of hardship. This king, this mighty God, was not just a God to say, I'm better than the other gods, although he was. He is not just a God to say, I'm better than the other kings, although he is. He is so far above any earthly king, any earthly person, any unholy act, any person touched with sin, this king who would come would be so unlike any other that his rule and reign in righteousness and the teaching of his wisdom and authority would be renowned amongst the people, which thousands of years have passed, by the way, since Jesus has, has died, buried, and was resurrected. And guess what? People still argue 
about who Jesus is, what he wa- who he was, why he came. You'll see it resurface in Time Magazine every so many years. Who was Jesus? Thousands of years have passed, and yet the remarkable revelation of Jesus' life and ministry remains because of the inspired truth of the living word. It is this word that calls us to labor for the sake of the king. To bear allegiance in your life and in your life's conduct. And how you and why you do what you do and even what you do. So that you can be honorable in his eyes. Now think about the presentation of power. I always think about this New Testament word that's often associated with Jesus when it says that he was meek and lowly. And meek is the word that is given often to describe power under control. And Jesus, this coming king, this mighty God, the one who has the right to rule of the line of David, would come in meekness, in lowliness, in in a manger, wrapped in human flesh. You realize he knew what it was like to suffer in a way that you and I cannot even contemplate. Now we suffer, and I'm not taking away any level of suffering that anyone here has experienced, but I can tell you this, Jesus suffered in a way that was so intense, that it's hard for our minds to even wrap around the kind of intensity of suffering. And he now can come and be the one who, who will aid us in our suffering because he knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be, to be human. He knows what it's like to have people, family members, abandon you, to think that you're crazy, to long for brothers and sisters to want to come to Christ. You think Jesus' immediate stepbrothers and his family immediately were always just recognizing him, that he's the Christ? No, he knows what it's like to be that kind of person. And he can come to us, this mighty God, wrapped in human flesh, and who presents us with a level of meekness so that we ourselves, isn't this fascinating? When you get to 1 Peter chapter uh, 3, verse 15, when he calls us to share our faith, and he says, do it with meekness and fear. Do it like Christ did it when he came, because he loved people. Well, what is the presentation of power? We know that Jesus came. He was rejected. He's still, his kingdom is yet to come. But are we left with no presentation of power in the meantime? I think not. Romans chapter one, what kind of power is there that we as believers recognize? That we await to see it in its full understanding and its full rule and reign. It's the power of Romans chapter 1 verse 16, isn't it? Where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the, pow- of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. What he's saying is it's available to everyone. And the power of God, of the mighty one of old, of Isaiah 9, would come. He would offer himself as a sacrifice in his own shed blood on the cross so that all could come to repentance and faith. But they had to understand that this was the very power of God. The mission of the Messiah was one who would come and he would would sacrifice himself 
And where is his power seen? Well, certainly if you follow that idea in Romans, it's seen in, in, in his invisible attributes and the very power of the things that have been made through this mighty God. He is one who rules in such a way that we get to Romans 8 and he says, Paul says this, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, by the spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For did you not receive the spirit of, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This king who will come and rule and reign, what do we do in the meantime? We display the power that the Spirit of God who lives within us by a transformed life because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And you and I will be consistently and, 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 and we must be committed to a regular Christian growth and sanctification in such a way that by the time we, when we are growing, we're recognizing, why, am I want, why do I want to grow? Because I am, I'm an heir of, the, of, of Christ. I want to rule and display the very nature of redemption through the way I live and the way I talk and the things I do. I want to show the, the power of God through salvation because my life has changed. Don't go out there and say, oh, I just love the power of the almighty God, and then you just want to point everybody to it. But yet in the privacy of your own life, when something else comes up and you go, God, why would you do that? See, it's easy in public to declare the mighty works of God when everyone else is watching. But what happens when God doesn't give you what you want and you struggle going, but you're mighty enough to do this. Do it for me. Don't have a false sense of dichotomy between who you are out here and what you're willing to proclaim and then what you're willing to proclaim in private. It must be consistent with what you bore allegiance to this king. So often people wonder about God's might and it flows out of a situation when they don't get what they want or they can't control something they would have never allowed. And they begin to question, God, how mighty really are you if you won't even stop this? And can I just say to you, the people of Israel in the time of Isaiah may come to Isaiah and, and he said he was making them dull of hearing for saying the same thing over and over again. And Isaiah would say, he's coming. He has done something about it. He is going to do something about these nations and he's going to send his son. So it's not the issue of whether he's going to do something. He has already committed to do something. The issue is, are you patient enough to see what he is about to do? And that's where we struggle. Waiting for the patient, mighty hand of God to do the things that he chooses to do in our lives when he wants to choose to do them. And if all of a sudden you hate that, you don't want to be patient, then you ought to ask yourself, 
what kind of allegiance am I expressing? Is it an allegiance of convenience? An allegiance of, I I fit in when it's cool to say this or when it's good to say it around people? But what about the privacy of my own life? Will I still admit that he has the right and the might to do whatever he chooses to do with me, to do with my family, to do with my children, and to do with whatever he wants in the nations? We must submit to his rule. Where Where is this power most displayed I love it when Paul goes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 to talk about his thorn in the flesh and how he longed for this hard situation to, to be something that would go away. And yet he said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. His power now, until he comes to display it in the coming kingdom, is seen in the gospel. It's seen in the way that you are committed to allegiance, to rule your own, to to live according to the truth. It is the way that you suffer. And you suffer because in a way that Paul says that my weakness is made perfect and his power is made perfect in my weakness. And the more that we understand that, we we long for this coming king, king to come who will make all things right. He will rule and reign, the king of Isaiah, the title of the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, who will come and make all things right. We must bear allegiance to this name, not only in profession of what we say, it must be something that we live out even when he asks us to wait for his coming. And it's often during the waiting that we struggle the most and we begin to ask questions of this mighty God. And we say this often. I know you're mighty God, but how about when? Could you just tell me when? We think in our own minds that we would be relieved if he would just tell us when and how often and how, uh, how he's going to accomplish it. He just says this. I'm coming, and I love how the New Testament authors do this. They'll come to Paul or something, and, and they'll even come to Jesus in the New Testament. He says, what are the signs of your coming? And, and Jesus will say something like this. Soon. Like, that's comforting. What is soon? Is soon quicker? Is it longer? Somewhere in between? It's soon, but it is soon enough that all prophecies have been fulfilled for Jesus to come and rightly rule and reign on the earth. And you know what? You should want him to come. You should long for him in your heart that this Christ child who was born, who died, was buried, was resurrected on our behalf, that we would see him on the throne of David in all his glory and that kingdoms and nations from far and wide would come to bow and pay allegiance to this king who rules with righteousness and wisdom and military strategy so that no person would ever come and thwart his rule. It's coming, brothers and sisters. And it's coming soon. And as long as he asks us to wait, then we'll wait. And in the meantime, we must 
pay attention to the hope that he has, built, he has given us within us by the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And if you're here and you're not a believer and you've never repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, if he comes, you're going to be saddened because you will not be an heir of Christ. You will leave his presence away from him in eternal dark torment of hell. Do we proclaim that coming king, this mighty one? I'm going to end with this as we read a, a psalm as we close in Psalm chapter 33. Just listen to this psalmist. It encapsulates all of what this idea of the mighty God is. The psalmist says this, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song and play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven and he sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. And our shield, for our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us as we, as we hope in you. Let's pray. Father, you are truly the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the rightful king that will sit on the throne of, of David Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice. Lord, we, we are so thankful that Jesus Christ now sits and rules uh, from on high at the right hand of the throne of God, and yet he will one day rule literally here on earth, sitting on his Father's throne. Lord, please, please help us to be patient, to be diligent as, as we've committed an allegiance to your name, to be followers in your kingdom. Lord, that we would be examples in a world filled with darkness. That as we witness and make disciples, that we could see so many who live in darkness who would, who would then come to the light.
through the power of the gospel that can save. In your name we pray, amen.